But I think there's been this fear that exercise is somehow going to be dangerous. Uh, and it's quite the contrary. After that first day, when they say you have cancer, there's a new person born. You know, there's this thing called new normal. I, th I think they don't really maybe understand how much it's going to help them. Each patient and each survivor is going to be experiencing different side effects, different experiences. The positive is that it's, it's never too late. Welcome to the REACH podcast, where you'll hear from researchers, doctors, and patients themselves on how exercise, nutrition, and lifestyle behaviors can reduce cancer risk and improve survivorship. I'm your host, Kieran Fairman. This week's episode of the REACH podcast is sponsored by the Lamstrom Foundation, which is a non-profit organization founded by Major League Soccer goalkeeper and Stage 4 Hodgkin's lymphoma survivor, Matt Lamson. The mission of the Lamstrom Foundation is to provide difference-making financial, emotional, and motivational support to cancer patients and families in all stages of cancer treatment and recovery, as well as to fund proven cancer researchers. So for more information and regular updates on the Lamstrom Foundation and what they're doing, go ahead and follow the Lamstrom Foundation on Facebook or visit lamstrom.com today. Hey, welcome to episode 15 of the Reach Podcast. Today's show, I'm chatting to Kylie Saxeter, who is a Hodgkin's lymphoma survivor and is also a physician by training, which made this show really unique and really interesting for a few reasons. First, because of Kylie's background and her training, she was able to describe the processes of different treatments and what people go through in a way that made it really easy to, to break down and understand. So she actually gave some of the more clear and detailed outlines of of what your treatment looks like and, and why it looks like that. So it was really cool to get that perspective on it. And secondly and more importantly, Kylie's training actually allowed her to influence her treatment decisions because she had access to some of the latest research in areas of oncology and she was actually able to talk to her oncologist and have these discussions and influence some of the course of her treatment. You know, we just kind of chat about everything from when she initially found a lump in her throat all the way through to getting a diagnosis and then going through treatment. And if you, as you follow through this interview, you'll get to find out pretty quickly that Kylie is a very strong-willed woman. And that was evidenced by her getting a cancer diagnosis and going through treatment while still going through her residency program to finish out you know, her, her residency, along with planning a wedding for when she finished up treatment. So just a really strong-willed woman. And it was an incredible chat. Again, this is going to be one of those ones that's broken up into two parts because we had so much to talk about. And one of those things we talked about was hitting snooze on your alarm in the morning. So myself and Kylie are both snoozers and we just can't get around you lunatics that just cartwheel out of bed on the first alarm. We both see a lot of value in setting one or two, maybe a third alarm and snoozing several times to eat through each. So it's like you get four or five mini sleeps in the morning. So we really kind of touch on that as well. So look out for that conversation in, in the podcast as well. But again, thanks to Kylie so much for her honesty, her vulnerability, just her willingness to share, your, share her story. I got a lot out of it and I hope you will too. Enjoy the episode. I'm really glad Darcy got us in touch because of the fact that it is so recent for you in, mm -hmm. in getting out of treatment. So you had Hodgkin's lymphoma mm -hmm. and you are out of treatment really really good news uh, just yeah, over a year one year so first congratulations on that thank you um so being a year out of treatment uh when were you diagnosed 
So I got my official diagnosis November 9th of 2015. Um, so I had just started, so I started dermatology residency. So the way dermatology works is four years of undergrad, then four years of medical school, and then you have to do one year called a traditional rotating internship, and that's where you're in the hospital and you're rotating to a bunch of different specialties, like you deliver babies and you work for a month in the ER and you do pediatrics and all that stuff. And then it's three years of dermatology residency after that. So, so hold on, you're gonna win <laughs> maths. So four years of undergrad. Yeah. Three years of two years of four four years of medical school. One year of a traditional rotating internship in the hospital. Right. And then three years of dermatology residency. And you're in your full I'm final in my, year. I'm in my final year. I'm starting my final year of dermatology residency. That yes. It's a journey. It's a journey. And my husband, uh, we met in undergrad. He went to dental school, which is four years after undergrad. And then he did orthodontics residency, which was two years and nine months. But orthodontics is super competitive and dermatology is super competitive. So the two of our worlds colliding, like so that we could coordinate to both be in Columbus, me for dermatology and him for um, orthodontics was very slim chances to begin with, but we somehow made that happen, like all the stars aligned. And so I just started my dermatology residency in July. He had a whole bout with a ruptured appendix that was like August and, and half of September. And he developed a couple different pelvic abscesses after that. And he had drains placed and it was a whole mess. So he got his drains out on a Wednesday. He proposed on Friday, that was at the end of September. And then at the beginning, at the end of October was when I first noticed my neck mass and then I got diagnosed November 9th. So it was, it was such a whirlwind yeah. of like, we were finally where we always wanted to be, where we would always strive to be. Like we had made it. We were together, living together in Columbus. He was in orthodontics. I was in dermatology. We had just gotten engaged. We had started planning the wedding and it was like, we have like finally reached like our ultimate goal. And it was just like, such an unexpected turn of events. So how was that then? You, you've you been through this kind of <laughs> just a storm of events from July through uh, end of August into September in terms of your husband being sick. And then you kind of come out and everything's great. You're kind of at the peak of, of okay, we're, we're, you know, we're engaged. This is it. We made it. And to be... Well, let me backtrack and say you felt a mass and, and how much did your training as a physician go into this is something versus kind of where people might ignore it for mm -hmm. weeks or months? So I think my training as a physician kind of worked against me, actually, because <laughs> I tend to think that patients are big babies. And so they come to the ER with like a sore throat that started this morning when they woke up. And so I never want to be that person who presents when there's nothing wrong with me. So I, if I go to the ER, it is because I am certain that if I don't go to the ER, I'm going to die. <laughs> so, because that's what the ER is for. Yeah, there's it's, a saw stuck in your leg, yeah. for your sore throat. Um, so anyway, I woke up one morning, so it's funny how, because I was thinking about it, how SOS fits in like every part of the story, and they, they are part of like each memory of a milestone. So, I go to the 5.30 a.m. classes, so I set my alarm at 4.45, I hit snooze twice, I get out of bed at 5.03, and then I leave for the gym at 5.15, so I can be, that's every day. Important sidebar, um, you are a double snoozer? Yeah, double snoozer. Okay. But it's only seven, I think it's seven minutes per snooze. 
That's, so like, that's an important distinction. Yeah, at 5.03, I have to get my butt out of bed or I'm not gonna make it. I will uh, set one alarm with a snooze, but send, then set a buffer alarm mm. because mm. my phone is right to snooze, left to turn off. Oh, and that's tricky. Yeah, at five o'clock in the morning, I just throw it across the room. And that's tricky. Yeah, so uh, that was a design flaw. Yeah, it ends up being like a four or five snooze okay. issue. Yeah, but I, I mean, I'm too. I've I've buffered that into my day, and exactly speaking to fellow snoozers, we appreciate the value in getting essentially you're getting three sleeps. Exactly. As opposed to these other people who come at you and said, "Well, you would get more sleep if you just slept through." No. But it doesn't give you the treat of being able to wake up three different times. Exactly. You're good, right. Good You're right. We're on the same, and we're on the same it's page. that twelve dollar I think they might have raised it to fifteen dollar cancellation fee SOS that gets me every single time. Because yeah. I'm not a morning person at all. If it weren't for that twelve dollars or fifteen dollars I think now. <laughs> I mean, if you miss a couple times a month, that adds up. Yeah. So every single day I would sleep in if it weren't for that. Um so anyway, I got up for the five thirty I got up at my five oh three. I went into the bathroom, I'm like half asleep, kind of looking in the mirror, and I was like, I think my neck looks swollen. And it was like right at the base of my neck. And I thought it was my thyroid, but I was like kind of half hallucinating it too. I was like, it really kind of does look swollen. So I went to the gym, I came home, got ready for work and everything. I went in that morning, it was a, a morning where my co-residents and I were studying, and I was like, you guys, does my neck look swollen? And everyone was like, just kind of looked at me, and they were like, sort of a little bit and then my one co-resident rich his dad's an oncologist and he said he knew someone i think an undergrad who had hodgkin's lymphoma and he just like was like wide-eyed like this and he was like you need to get that checked out and i was like what do you mean there's just like it it just like looks a little bit swollen you think it's my thyroid or something do you think i have a goiter and i was like making everyone feel it and everyone was kind of like i mean it's a little bit swollen except for him he was like you need to go see someone today I was like, Rich, calm down. So I sent my mom pictures. Of course, my mom's freaking out. I was like, you guys, I'm fine. Like, that's, it's really weird that my thyroid's swollen when I don't have any symptoms, but I'll, I'll go to the doctor. Like, I'll call my family medicine doctor. And then my mom was like, you need to call her today. So she, my mom got in my head enough that I called, and I went to the doctor, and she felt it. And she said, she said that she was like, I don't think this is anything bad. She was like, but it's definitely there. So I'm not sure if it's your thyroid or what it is. She was like, but I don't think this is like a lymphoma or anything because I've felt lymphomas and they feel bad. And this one doesn't feel, this doesn't feel bad. So she sent me for an ultrasound. That showed a, like just a, a mass and said, you know, go for a CT. So then I went for a CT and then that's when I like, when I got those results, I knew something was bad. And so then that's how SOS comes into the story again because the day I there's like two diagnosis days there's the day I got my CT results and then the day I got my biopsy results that showed it was Hodgkin's but the day I got my CT results I went to I think it was Corella's class on a Wednesday morning and then I had the rest of the morning off to study so I went to the 645 class so I got out at 745 I had got my CT the night before at like five o'clock so at this point I was like starting to think like okay this might actually be something to be concerned about so I got back from class and I was getting out of my car and I got the call from my primary care physician and I, as I was walking into my house and so I just like sat on my bed my bench at the end of my bed and she was just like 
I forget, her exact words were like, you have a very large mass in your mediastinum that looks malignant. And you will probably need to have a surgery. And she was like, and it might happen soon. You know, it could be by the end of this week. And she said that, she was like, you should probably call your program director and let her know who's, you know, my, like my boss. And she was like, because you're probably gonna have to take some time off because this is, this wouldn't be a, a small surgery. This would be like a crack your chest kind of surgery. Wow. Like, and I was just sitting there by myself, like a sweaty mess. I mean, you know what like SOS classes are like. I was like, like I jumped in a pool, just sitting on the edge of my bed and I was like, whoa. And nobody was home. Wow. So you essentially found out over the phone on your own. Yeah, yeah, but she, yeah, and then, and then the way it was delivered too, I think. Um, so it wasn't it wasn't a directly you have Hodgkin's lymphoma. It was just kind of build up to yeah. There's a mass, and you might need surgery. And it turns out the surgery is pretty severe, and now you have to take off work. Yeah, and so it was like all at once, and and um, so the the mass was eight and a half centimeters by six centimeters. So it was a very large mass in my like anterior chest, and it was coming up into my neck, and that's how I spotted it. Um, but it wasn't really symptomatic until I looked back in retrospect at SOS. I was having a slight cough during exercise, like just really like maximal heart rate stuff. And I thought it was allergies and I started taking a Zyrtec every day, but it still, it only happened. The cough only happened when I was like at my max capacity. And then for probably like six months prior, every time I did something with overhead arm extension, like jumping jacks. I felt like a very slight like choking sensation, but it was very minimal and it wasn't like inhibiting me from doing anything. And it was never anything that I would have gone to the doctor for. I didn't even mention it to anyone because it was so stupid. It was so small and it wasn't anything that I was going to complain to anyone about. And then I, and I was probably, I was having night sweats, but then I was just like, it's hot in the in the room and my husband sweats when he sleeps too like but I was waking up like drenched in sweat that in retrospect I I see were symptoms so is it pretty aggressive then in in terms of when you catch it at what six and nine centimeters yeah it was eight and a half centimeters and six centimeters yeah um, yeah that, I mean that's that's large that's large yeah and so that growth looks like then is that that's months of growth is that weeks of growth it's probably years really it's probably years and I look back at pictures from you know I got my license at the beginning of September and you can see it in my license picture and wow. I got my friend got married in August and you can see it there you can see it nobody had seen it though and I honestly that morning that I woke up and looked in the mirror before going to the gym I was like I thought it happened overnight I swear to god I was like this is something weird going on here with my thyroid and um yeah, nobody had noticed it. We all see it now. Yeah. In pictures and stuff. That's fascinating to look back in retrospect to to kind of see all those signs in after the fact. I know. Yeah. So you're after getting this phone call. What do you do? <laughs> what do you do when you hang up the phone? So I called my husband, and he was in clinic seeing patients, so he didn't answer. And then I called my sister. And she, I think, was like expecting a call because she, I think she, she's also a physician. So I think she probably, as an outsider, was thinking worst case scenario, whereas I was like, oh, everything's fine. Um, 
So she picked up and then I said something along the lines of like, I have some bad news and I'm going to need you to help me tell mom. And what did, what's, what's her response to that? She was just like, okay, well I'm walking into clinic now, but I'm going to, I'm just going to turn around and go home. And it just so happened that my mom was down at my sister's. <clears throat> my sister has a, a nie my niece is now two, so she was younger then. And so my mom was down there helping and babysitting. And so my sister went home because she just didn't want to tell my mom over the phone. And then she just said my mom, you know, was a disaster. So she was the one who told your ma. And did your ma get on the phone to you then? Do you go see them? No. Um, I eventually got hold of Jamie, my husband, and he, I think he came home at lunchtime. Um my sister my mom was just like totally inconsolable my sister said that she just like as soon as my sister walked in the door like my mom knew something was wrong and my mom's a little bit of a catastrophizer anyway <laughs> so i think she thought i was gonna die and um i then it was like spring into action like my um primary doctor said she was gonna try to get me to see an oncologist like that day or the next day so then I was on the phone with them trying to get in to see someone and I texted my co-residents and my program director, told them what was going on. I, um, you know, they were texting me oncologists that they know who, who you should see this person and things like that. And um, so it was more of just like immediate action. That's not similar or that's different to, to so many other people I've talked to and that they've had to wait weeks or even a month mm -hmm. and there's a lot of uncertainty in that time and what's going to happen and all that type of stuff so you've gone in almost the next day to get rolling on yeah so I went in the next day and the next step was biopsy and mine was visible enough in my neck that you could just kind of punch right into it and do like a what's called a core needle biopsy where you just suck some tissue out of out of that but at that point I knew what it was because in a young person in that location and that size, um, there's only a few things it could be. There's something called a thymoma, which is super rare, or Hodgkin's lymphoma. So, the, I mean, those were really the two options. So that was a Wednesday. I got the CT results on Friday. My whole family came down, actually, and I had the biopsy. And then Monday was when I got the results of the biopsy. So the results of the biopsy, you were on your own, you had your family... I went so the where I had the biopsy was right next to where I work and I went into clinic in the morning and I knew that uh, Dr. Jenkinson was the pathologist there he was reading the biopsy and so I called when I got there I called to see if he was in yet and he said yeah I'm in you know come over if you want to talk or if you want you if you want to discuss your results so I just walked across the parking lot and like when I walked in the first thing he did was give me a hug he was like, first of all, let me just give you a hug. And then I think he said something like, you know, do you want me to just tell you or something? And I said, yeah. And he said, it's Hodgkin's lymphoma. And I said, okay, I already knew that. And then we sat down at the microscope and looked at the slide together, which was kind of interesting. Yeah, that is. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean, you're trained yeah. to, to be able to see what it is yeah. and identify it. We wanted to find, there's like, there's something called owl's eyes that are classic for Hodgkin's lymphoma. And if you were to be tested on it, then that's what they would show you. And he was like, I wasn't able to find any of those cells for you. I wanted to show you, but... Um, and then I, I went back over to clinic and kept seeing patients. 
And um, I, I do, I will always remember though, there was one patient, it was probably like mid-morning, and we were seeing him for itching. And I will say that itching is miserable. So I believe that he was miserable. But he was telling me about his itching, and I was like, yeah, I understand. I'm just trying to be empathetic. You know, and he was like, you don't understand. You have <laughs> no idea what I go through every day. And I was just like, hmm, okay. Yeah. You have no idea that I was diagnosed with cancer literally two hours ago. And I'm sitting in here talking about your itching. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you're but, gonna scratch your ass and I've got cancer. But I do think being itching is being itchy is so miserable. But it's just an interesting perspective to keep in mind. Nobody has any idea what anyone's going through. Yeah, yeah, and I, for all intents and purposes, you probably look perfectly exactly normal, young physician. Exactly. Um, how did the ability to to talk to your uh, oncologist or the, or the guy who told you about the biopsy to talk to him on a level that you both understood each other and even stand over the microphone did that help was it, how did that experience feel for you I think that it went both ways in one hand like during the experience and when I look back at it I'm like I have no idea how people do this when they have no medical knowledge at all how are you supposed to make these decisions it's so complex and even just the um insurance the health insurance side of it like when you're sick i mean i have a binder full of of um explanation of benefits from my insurance company versus the bills that i was sent and understanding that you have a i have a certain deductible for uh, medical expenses but i have a separate deductible and, and max out of pocket for um pharmacy for medical for drugs and so those are two completely separate things and I just have no idea how people with no medical training and also who are sick keep track of all this stuff and there's it made it brought me back to the fact that there's so much trust in your physician that you don't you don't you take a little bit for granted sometimes when you're on the physician side of things that these people are at their most vulnerable point and they will do anything you suggest and it's life and death sometimes at stake yeah and it's interesting the the more I've gotten involved with with the medical school and, and working with physicians and oncologists, they are just people, mm -hmm. you know, and they, they are using their training and their experience and uh, they're, they're giving going their opinions. Their, exactly, basically. yeah. And it's hard. How do, you, how do you challenge that when you have no exactly. foundation to challenge it? Exactly. You just kind of say, yeah, we'll, we'll do what you want So do. it worked to my benefit in certain ways. So, like, I got out of a bone marrow biopsy because... I went to my oncologist. He said I needed a bone marrow biopsy. I told him that the NCCN guidelines didn't recommend a bone marrow biopsy in my case. So the NCCN guidelines are guidelines for every single type of cancer there is, including skin cancer. And you only have access to it if you're a healthcare provider. So like I have an NCCN login because I'm a physician. So I got on there and looked up the guidelines for Hodgkin's lymphoma. And so he was like, yes, you do need one. And I said, but the most recent guidelines that came out said I don't need one. And then he was like, well, we need to do one. So they came upstairs and they, were, they came up and the lady was setting up for one in the office. And then he came back in. He was like, actually, you're right. I just looked him up and it's not warranted right now. And I was like, yeah, I know. But I would have gone through a bone marrow biopsy is a really painful, so I hear, an invasive procedure. 
And if you had no idea or you weren't up on the most current guidelines or your, your oncologist wasn't up on the most current guidelines, then you, I would have gotten one. Um, and I actually ended up switching oncologists after my uh, chemo was over, but before I started radiation. Because I, I'm, a, I'm a physician and I am a, in my dermatology residency, but I am not an oncologist. So I, I have, luckily, have the medical knowledge and the resources to be able to read about Hodgkin's lymphoma, but I shouldn't be driving my care necessarily. And I wanted someone who was an expert to, you know, I shouldn't be updating my oncologist on the most recent guidelines, most recent NCCN guidelines. So I felt a little bit like, because I was a physician, I was giving a little, I was given a little bit of free reign for me to tell my doctor what I wanted to do. Like he was looking at me for, well, what do you think we should do? And I'm like, well, what do you think we should do? <laughs> you know? yeah. So it's a weird like predicament for both of us to be in, I think. It is interesting because the field is literally ever evolving mm -hmm. almost daily updates and to stay on top of that it requires such a dedication to your craft and a sacrifice and just like anyone in any job you can get comfortable and you can fall back into whatever exactly. you know just here's a normal routine exactly and i got to be put through a bone marrow uh biopsy without it being warranted like I mean, you're you're just you're lucky that your training allowed you to be able to have that. I know. So why isn't why don't the public have access to these guidelines? They might have access to some like version of the guidelines, but the specific guidelines that the that healthcare providers utilize are very detailed in terminology that the general public probably wouldn't understand. That makes sense. But there's probably some, you know, watered down version of the guide loose guidelines yeah. out there somewhere. Yeah. So more kind of layman's terms, brief yeah. overview. Yeah, but I was logging into like the healthcare providers website and looking and reading on up to date and reading everything because before this, like I had known of Hodgkin's lymphoma, in like in medical school, I knew it to the extent that on the test question, if it's a 23 year old with night sweats and weight loss, it's Hodgkin's lymphoma. If it's a 63 year old with night sweats and weight loss, it is non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. Like that's about as far as I got <laughs> yeah. in my knowledge of it. We all know the feeling of, you know, you have a fight with your boyfriend or whatever it is and you try and work that day and it's all you can think about and you're kind of on autopilot. Mm -hmm. How did the rest of that day look like? Were you on autopilot? Were you able to to focus and block it out of your mind? I think it was a good thing to be at work. I like to stay busy. Um, that's really the only thing I remember from that day, that one patient who the was itchy. itchy. <laughs> yeah, because it was such like a defining moment. I wonder if the itchy dude will listen to this. No. Now. no, I don't think he's the type of dude who listens to podcasts. No. I don't know, you never know. <laughs> you, you yeah, know. you're right. So uh, you, went, you went back to work that day, then what happens? Um, so then it was like, once you actually get your diagnosis, then it's just like a whirlwind of other things that you have to do. So you have to start chemo. So you have to get all your pre-chemo testing. So for my specific chemo, I had to get something called PFTs, pulmonary function testing, because uh, bleomycin is toxic to your lungs. So they need to get a baseline. Um, you have to get a MUGA scan, which is for your heart, because adriamycin is, is cardiotoxic. So they need a baseline for that. You have to decide how you're going to get the chemo, whether it's going to be via PICC line or via port. So a PICC line is a peripherally inserted central catheter that goes like in your arm. 
and a port uh, goes in the chest and it's a little surgery to have it placed. Um, so that was always happening. And I do remember the, my oncologist recommended a pick line for me because I'm a young person and this was going to be a scar on my chest and it was going to be a surgery to have the port placed. And he was like, well, why don't you just get a pick line? So I, I would talk to the pick line lady and was talking about what would a pick line entail and can I still do my activities with the pick line? I said, so can I do like push-ups and uh, can I, so because maintaining my fitness was like number one priority, probably more than it than was sane. But I was like, so can I do push-ups and can I do jumping jacks? And she was like, honey, I don't think you're going to feel like doing that stuff. You're going to be really tired. And I was like, okay, honey. (laughs) I don't think you know who you're dealing with here. I am crazy. (laughs) So I think she's used to dealing with old sick people. And I was a young, healthy person, and I found no reason that I should be sick or you know, act sick, or, or that I should stop doing what I enjoy. So I'm so happy that I didn't get a pick line, because a pick line, first of all, it has to be kept dry. They put it under this like tegaderm, which is an occlusive dressing. It, you're not supposed to sweat. So if you sweat underneath that occlusive dressing, it can cause like breakdown of the skin. It can get infected and things like that. You definitely shouldn't be doing a bunch of arm movements, heavy weight lifting, push-ups, jumping jacks, anything stuff like to do that. with SOS. Anything to do with SOS. <laughs> yes. Uh, so I decided to go with the port, which I was really happy with. I, I took I think a week off after I got the port placed, um, but continued my I continued my exercise through the whole treatment. So I really showed that pick lady. <laughs> so pick lady yeah, um, so a couple of things I want to come back to there uh, those those tests for chemotherapy aren't exclusive to Hodgkin's lymphoma generally when people are diagnosed um, they they try and pick the ones that are going to be best suited to you so people who are diagnosed or or you know just to get an understanding of what that looks like it's not just straight diagnosis to surgery to chemo and gone you still have to decide a course of treatment and people's chemo and the type of chemo and the dose they receive can all be different based on a variety of factors. Yep. And it also speaks to your level of confidence in being able to talk to these doctors and ask them questions. And I think too often we get lab coat syndrome or, you know, they're the expert, they know what they're talking about, yeah. I won't ask questions yeah. without saying, well, if I am an exerciser and I don't have this knowledge, I still want to know how it impacts it. And I think too often we're not that we're afraid, but there's apprehension there to question physicians on, mm-hmm. you know, because a lot of them can be, you know, they can be busy and their answers are short and we'll ask our questions and we'll get enough and say, okay, that's fine. And then leave there and say, that didn't fulfill me. Absolutely. And the importance of making sure your questions are answered and you feel comfortable leaving there is critical to, to your overall experience. Absolutely. And I think the lack of patient knowledge is multifactorial, but I I am so surprised that people will have entire organs removed from their body and they will have no idea what they had done. It's like a huge scar on their belly. And I'm like, what'd you have done here? I don't know. I had some surgery for something. And it's like, you, what, how do you not know what happened to you? But I think that it's a combination of things. I think it's the, you know, lack of knowledge on the 
the patient's half and it's not wanting to question the physician. It's the physician being rushed. It's a bunch of different things. Um, but you're right. They, it's, it's, I knew the questions to ask and I knew exactly what I was getting and why I was getting it. And my pulmonary function testing, testing is because I'm having bleomycin, which is toxic to your lungs. Like I knew that. I knew why I was getting each test that I was getting. Patients don't know that, and nobody explains it to them. And sometimes I think I over-explain to patients, and I'm talking to them, and they're starting to get that, like, glass over eyes, and and I can tell they're not listening to me. And if I would have just stopped my sentence in the middle of it, nobody in the room would even notice. Yeah. But but I'd rather be that way than, the, than like, you described, where they're in the car wishing they would have asked something. Exactly, and you may with that approach you may very well have people that glass over and don't understand but the people that you will help in quote-unquote over explain it is is so valuable mm-hmm. so i think I, I do like that approach so everyone's chemo chemo is different um let's walk us through yours and what was it like so i had chemo that was a v b d uh, which is pretty much standard for hodgkin's now and um, so I got my port placed on a Wednesday, and I, I used it the next day. So I had my first chemo on Thursday, which was probably not a good idea in yeah. retrospect. <laughs> it was really sore. It was really, really sore. Um, but I just wanted to get rolling. And I had a wedding coming up. I had a wedding November 26th of 2016, and I was like, I am finishing this treatment and growing my hair for my wedding, um, which was a good distraction to have. It was the wedding planning through the whole thing but so hold hold on hold on hold on you are a medical residency yeah you are diagnosed with Hodgkin's lymphoma yeah and you have a wedding and I'm planning a wedding yeah and I went to the gym at 5 30 a.m every day still <laughs> you need to talk yeah. to some of these chicks in this department man they have they have their uh their, a couple of exams and they have a wedding and it's just panic stations for eight months <laughs> well I think that you start to put things in perspective like I remember it wasn't my I think it no, it was when I was getting my port placed. I looked down, and it was right when I was about to go back. It was like the pre-op stuff, and I looked down, and one of the like small stones out of my ring was missing. And I was like, huh, my, one of these stones fell out. And my dad was just like looking at me, and he was like, you're handling this really well. <laughs> if, if one of your stones would have fallen out a couple months ago, I feel like you would have been really upset about it. Yeah. And I was like, eh, it's just a thing. It's kind of you know? what you were like, talking about with the change of perspective. Yeah. Um, so with, with the port, uh, was there stitches there the next day? Yeah. So even with the stitches there, they were okay with going through Yeah. That? It was really sore and really bruised and red, um, because they try to make a small incision and then they put this in there and then they have to put the catheter into one of your central arteries so that the, the, uh, chemo drugs can go right into your main bloodstream. So, but before that, you go through, you go to the infusion center and do all the pre-testing stuff where they tell you all the effects that your chemo can have and they walk you through what it's going to be like when you come for your first treatment and everything, which was an it's interesting dilemma for me to, do I tell them I have a physician and I know what they're, like that they can speak medical terms with me and don't have to speak layman's terms or do I just go in there and act like I don't know anything and let them do their spiel? Um, I think I ended up telling her. Uh, just because I felt like it was a more efficient way to communicate. So then I went on the first, the first day is longer because they have to, um, 
give you like a test dose of some of the medicines to make sure you don't go in anaphylactic shock or anything like that. So my husband and my parents both came with me and they only allow one person back there with you at a time on your first chemo in case something you were to have some adverse reaction, they would need to be able to get to you and they didn't, they wouldn't want to have a bunch of people around. So that one probably takes like four hours or longer or so, but you go in on the day and you, uh, first you go to the lab. Well, first you check in, but then you go to the lab and you get your labs drawn. And then you have an appointment with the physician, with your oncologist, and they have your labs by that time. And then if everything's good, then they send you up to the chemo infusion center and that's where you go and sit in the chair and, and everything. Two separate times I went to have chemo and wasn't able to get it because my neutrophils were too low. So there's something called your absolute neutrophil count. Your neutrophils are part of your immune system that help fight off infections, but the chemo can wipe them out. And um, normal range, I don't want to misspeak. I think it's like 1,500. The first time I went in, mine were 200, and that was too low. Um, and then the second time, the second time I was denied chemo was was when it was they were zero. So I basically had like no very minimal defense against any sort of bacterial infections. Um, so they said that for both of those times, it wasn't safe for me to get chemo. So that's a whole like mind game when you, because I was preparing for chemo for the entire time leading up to it because I had reading for, for residency to do. I had work, I had all this stuff and I had put out at the beginning of my treatment, I had put all my treatments in my calendar and I didn't like think that there was I didn't think about the possibility that that might that schedule might get thrown off track. Like this was the schedule and this was when I was going to be done and I was planning my whole life around that and I was reading the next week's reading to stay ahead because I knew that week and I wasn't going to get out of bed and it's like then when you show up and they and they say you can't get it then it's like wait a wait a second no 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 it's in my calendar. Like I have to, <laughs> I have to get it. You, are, you, know, like, you don't strike me as a person who likes to be told no. Yeah, exactly. I was like, well, what happens if you give it to me anyway? <laughs> Just a <laughs> small chance of... Yeah, you know, she was like, well, you could die. Or, yeah. Um, so I ended up having to go on something called Nulasta, which is a... It's called a granule, granulocyte um, stimulating factor. And it basically stimulates your bone marrow to make these cells. And that was a whole, like, another, a whole other decision that I had to make because there's there are risk factors associated with that that can increase your risk of leukemia in the future it comes with a whole host of side effects like fatigue and nausea and bone pain because it's stimulating your bone marrow so it can cause you to be really achy in your bones and everything like that um but and that was another decision where i where the oncologist was kind of leaving it up to me. And I just wanted an expert to tell me what to do. He was like, well, we could space out your treatments and do them every three weeks to give your neutrophils more time to recover. Or we could start this GCSF, this new Lasta drug, and stay on your every two-week schedule. And I, I didn't know what the right answer was. That's, I mean, that's one of the clearest outlines we've had of, of the treatment today. And I think uh, there's a couple of things I want to focus on. First, when people... When people think of chemo, I don't think people understand what goes into it in terms of I got chemo or I'm getting chemo. And a lot of it is, like you said, sitting in a chair mm -hmm. for hours. Mm -hmm. And it's not, you know, radiation is, is fairly quick. relatively quick. Yeah. It's a 20, 40 minute, uh, you know, radiation scan. But in terms of the, the chemo, 
you're sitting there and mm-hmm. and i don't think people understand what, what's going to go into that and on the other side of that in terms of the treatment course it's not just as you said a planned course of treatment where you're getting this this and this on this this and this day there are so many variations mm-hmm. based on how your immune system's holding on the dose of chemo if they need to lower it if it's too toxic how you're recovering from it and that all can be difficult to plan for mm-hmm. and i think the, the more we talk about this the more we get it out in terms of understanding what you're going to go through as as a cancer patient in, in in that chemo and how it can be changed i think will be really helpful for people to yeah to hear and you can't make any plans like and and that's kind of a silly thing about life is that you know the, i think there's a death cab for cutie song that says um and i it, it came to me then that every plan is a tiny prayer to father time and it's like it's exactly true because i like i you know, I had my whole chemo schedule in my calendar, and then I was going to be able to go to the American Academy of Dermatology annual meeting in in Washington because it fell on a in Washington D.C. because it fell on a non-chemo weekend. So I was like, yes, I bought my plane ticket, I bought the insurance just in case. But then my schedule got thrown off, and then that was going to be a chemo weekend. So then I had, and then of course, the insurance that I bought for the flight was not was not held up because it was a pre-existing condition that forced me oh to God. not be able to travel so and it was only like a hundred and twenty dollars for this plane ticket so it, i but i would like took it as like a personal uh a per, a, yeah and well i was like i'm gonna get this hundred twenty dollars back so then i had i said no it's not a pre-existing condition i didn't have the low neutrophils before it's the low neutrophils that are preventing me from traveling not the cancer (laughs) and so like i had to get my doctor my oncologist to write a letter and send it in this whole process you have to fill this huge application but i didn't care because i was going to stick this 120 dollars to whatever airline it was so it probably cost you more than 150 dollars in time but the principle i like it i got it back i got it back so as you're going through that how the hell do you stay up to date in in your residency how do you you, you <laughs> residency is is a nightmare i know for a healthy person in terms of the just the the cognitive strain how do you how did you do it i was lucky to be in dermatology residency which was good because there's no call like there's no weekend call there's no night call there's no 24-hour shifts in the hospital that was my intern year and luckily this i mean this all happened at the right time because my intern year i was working i did two months of nights i would have never in the hospital i would never have been able to do that and go through my treatment so i would have had to take time off but my my residency was so understanding everybody in it was so understanding and i structured it you know kind of like darcy did where i i had my chemos on thursdays fridays i would go to work they give you steroids before they do the chemo infusions and this is another thing people don't they just hang up bags and people have no idea what what they're even getting Um, people have no idea that they get prednisone before as a pre-infusion um, so they give you steroids before the infusion. And I think that's why people don't feel the effects for like two days. Like the next day, you feel semi-okay. I mean, you feel a little bit out of it, but you don't feel super sick. And I think that's because of the steroids that they give you first. And then it's, the, you know, so I would have chemo Thursday. I would go to work on Friday like normal. Saturday, I would get out of bed but not really leave the house. And then Sunday, I wouldn't get out of bed. And then Monday was hit or miss. Like I might make it like a half day into work. Like 
I might go in at like 11 or 12 or something. And then, like I said, I would pre-plan with my reading. Like I would be, the weekends, so it took over my life because the weekends where I was not getting chemo, I was studying the entire time because I had like double the reading to do that weekend. And then the next weekend I was in bed. And when I was in bed, I couldn't, it's like your vision is blurry. You're, you don't think straight. And like I couldn't, I would just lay there. And sometimes I wouldn't even be sleeping. I would just be laying in bed because I couldn't focus on the TV even to watch a movie. Like it's just like your vision was off and you just feel, it's kind of like when you lay down and get the spins when you're drunk. It's like <laughs> kind of like that, but not as fun. And it's like the worst hangover you've ever had times 100. You know? That's a pretty, so, <laughs> yeah, yeah. most people could relate to that. So I, I mean, I just, it took a ton of planning. It took a lot of understanding on the um, parts of my co-residents and of my faculty. And um, I had a lot of catching up to do at the beginning of the second year, I would say, you know. So I was barely getting by. Anyone who, who has been in grad school or has done kind of extensive post-grad training knows and understands that feeling of guilt when you take a weekend off mm -hmm. or when you, you know, you go on vacation, you're like, I should be writing, I should be reading. Mm -hmm. How does that manifest itself when you are taking all this time off, but it's not of your own accord? Mm -hmm. do, do you have those feelings of guilt and how does that, how does that look? I, I didn't as much, I would say, um, because when I was taking the time off, I was like too sick or out of it to even care. And then when I wasn't, when I was an, on an off chemo weekend, I was doing nothing but studying. So I really didn't have a lot of free time in there. And then during chemo, I would bring my mom, I would bring my computer and either my mom and I would do wedding planning stuff, or I would sit there with my books and read. And I, there's pictures of me and I've got like my Bologna dermatology book sitting next to me on the little infusion chair. So there you go, folks. That's part one of the episode with Kylie. Uh, just a really great episode. And I think her perspective as a physician brought a really unique kind of approach to it. So I thought it made for some really interesting conversation. Part two, we'll touch on some of the uh, longer side effects of treatment, um, some of the more pronounced side effects of treatment and how she kind of got back into her daily routine and kind of got back to a normal life, quote unquote. We also talk about some really interesting Jimmy John sandwiches and uh, some techniques to optimize your meat to sandwich ratio, which is a really important consideration when you're working with Jimmy John's. So again, folks, thanks a lot for tuning in. Stay tuned for next week's episode and we'll see you soon.